in the morning when you need the news that matters most. We have a constitutional right to publish this story. We are the fourth estate and we will hold the powerful accountable. You need the front page. Wait, what's the fourth estate? Us, the press. And everyone knows that? On the press box. Because I feel like people always say the fourth estate, but they don't actually know what it means. I think everybody knows what it means. I thought the fourth estate was time. That's the fourth dimension. I thought the fourth estate was Georgia. With Graney and Bischoff. No, not state, a state. You thought I was saying we're the state of Georgia? Featuring Adam Candy. Aaron Donald became the first non-quarterback to get a contract worth more than $30 million per year. He now has a three-year deal worth $95 million. My question on Aaron Donald, was he seriously considering retirement this offseason, or was that all a Aaron Donald ploy to get a bigger contract from the Rams? I honestly don't care. I just think the great part about it is that a non-quarterback is so dominant and so otherworldly that he has the leverage to even do that. Like, that's what we've getting rid of in the NFL over the last few years with making holdouts so punitive, right? Anybody but a quarterback really can't pull this off unless you're Aaron Donald and unless you are a game wrecker as an interior defensive lineman, which just sounds crazy in the first place, but he's so damn good and so much better than everybody else that, of course, he can. And he did, and good for him. What, What is the list outside of quarterbacks? Uh, is there is there a wide receiver that could essentially do what Aaron Donald did to to use any sort of leverage play to get more money? Ask Debo Samuel. He's at yeah. minicamp today, right? Yeah. Like it, like Debo Samuel showed up at the mandatory, and so we saw a guy who seems to have a lot of leverage over his team, especially because Debo Samuel's value to the Niners is probably higher than his value to just about everybody else. Then he wasn't really able to pull it off, and I think Devontae Adams would have had to play. For the Packers, I think Tyreek Hill would have had to play for the Chiefs. Ultimately, I don't know that there's anybody else who could have accomplished this. Man, you know, that's a great question. Darvin Ham, new head coach of the Lakers, says Russell Westbrook will have to sacrifice. He was on ESPN yesterday, was asked. Uh, his, the question specifically was, what will Russell Westbrook's role be? And the first thing Ham said was, the biggest words we used, or the biggest word we used was sacrifice. He then went on to talk about them needing to be him being like the leader of the defense, being a great defender and all that. But when asked about his role, the first thing out of Ham's mouth was sacrifice. We need him to sacrifice. Uh, is that going to happen? Like Russell Westbrook has never really done that in his career. And I don't know that even if he does sacrifice and not be a ball dominant, take looking for his shot, that he even provides that much value to an NBA team. I'm not sure Darvin Ham watched all the interviews with Russell Westbrook toward the very end of the year, or maybe he did, and this is his reaction to them. But Russell Westbrook spent a lot of time at the end of this season talking about how the organization and Frank Vogel in particular never really allowed him to be himself. They never let him play the way that he can be most effective. And it doesn't sound like Darvin Ham's really much about that either. So I don't know how this works out, doesn't it? This, to me, echoes all of the time that we heard yeah, Carmelo Anthony's going to have to accept that it's a different role for him now. And it took him like three years to accept that. 
I don't know that Russell Westbrook has had the erosion of skills that Carmelo Anthony had at the point we were having that discussion. And I also don't know that the Lakers are in any position to try to force him to do this because in the end, they have so much money committed to Russell Westbrook that I don't know how you fill that hole without him being a useful player for you. Do you think there's a legitimate chance he could actually be traded? For what? That's the yeah, question. I, yeah, yeah right, I, I know. Right, Mark, right? Like, that, yeah, it takes it Mark, takes two to tango is what I'm saying. Right. Mark Stein had a report on it that was like the Lakers aren't interested in trading him while like giving up an additional asset. And if they're not going to do that, then it becomes, is there a team out there that would give the Lakers something in return for Russell Westbrook? And I mean, maybe there is, but I just. I can't imagine being an NBA team, seeing what Russell Westbrook did and said, yes, we need to trade for that, right? We need to give up an asset for that right now. I could maybe see if teams are like, oh, you're going to include a, well, they don't have any picks for like a decade, but you're going to include something with Westbrook. Yeah, okay, we'll pay his salary. We'll figure it out. But I can't imagine teams actually giving up a, a useful asset to get Russell Westbrook back. So I'm, I don't know. I'm fascinated to see what happens there. I don't, uh, like you don't envy umpires and figuring out intent. I don't envy any coach that has to figure out what to do with the Lakers next season. To get minutes in this program and you know to make a nice college career for yourself. This is so, Is there a wow. murder going on? That was awesome. DeAndre Ayton might not play for the Suns next season. A story in The Athletic. Sources tell The Athletic that it's more likely than not that Ayton plays somewhere other than Phoenix next season. Uh, he is a restricted free agent. The Detroit Pistons were named as a possible destination to pair him with Cade Cunningham. Um, is DeAndre Ayton capable of playing in this era of basketball? We can have the same conversations about guys like Rudy Gobert, but, like, is DeAndre Ayton worth acquiring, or is this just simply a player in the wrong decade? And mind you, this goes back to last offseason when the Suns couldn't reach an extension with DeAndre Ayton, and he's going to come up on free agency, and I'm sure the Suns aren't much interested in losing him for nothing. Plus, they can look at what happened to them last year, or this past season, and have a pretty good excuse for making a major trade, right? Uh, the, the Phoenix Suns flamed out this past year, and I don't think it's DeAndre Ayton's fault necessarily, but they're going to need to do something. So I don't think DeAndre Ayton is the prototype for what you build around at this point. They obviously took him number one a few years ago, and I don't think that was really the uh, the wisest choice in today's NBA. But I also don't think we can just degrade that skill set entirely for the team that had the best regular season record in basketball this year and absolutely fell apart in the playoffs, DeAndre Ayton's not Rudy Gobert, and I mean that in good ways and in bad ways. He's not as dominant defensively, but he's sure as hell way more of an offensive option than Rudy Gobert. So I think the question with a big at this point is, are they more of a rotational player versus being someone who you build around and say, okay, we got to get them X number of touches in 35 minutes a night. Maybe it's something where you're just trying to use that player in certain situations to create matchup problems. Yeah, and based on that idea, I wonder how much different this conversation is if DeAndre Ayton had been picked uh, 12th in an NBA draft instead of first. Like, I don't, I think we might be looking at it and talking about it a lot different if he was a later pick as opposed to being number one overall. We, it's the same as Baker Mayfield in that, right? Right? Like, we would talk about Baker Mayfield completely differently 
than if he were not the number one pick. If he were picked in the Mac Jones 15 spot, it would be like, yeah, it's probably about how it would have played out. But because he was the first overall pick, we have a lot more questions. Step back one-legged. What kind of shot is that? Have you ever shot that shot? Do you work on that shot? Oklahoma will play Texas in the Women's College World Series. And this Oklahoma softball team has got to be one of the most dominant sports teams we have ever seen. They are 57-3 and this season. They actually lost yesterday to UCLA, but UCLA had to beat them twice in a double elimination format. So in the second game, Oklahoma run-ruled UCLA 15 to nothing, And of Oklahoma's 57 wins this year, they have won 40 of them by run rule that is unbelievable dominance in women's softball don't you think all sports could benefit from a run rule of some sort like oh, everyone has these yes. issues right we talk about all oh, the games too long three hour games are too long no three hour blowouts are too long three hour competitive games are no problem three hour blowouts are a pain so if you found a way to just have a mercy rule in all sports we could all get on with our days and not worry about whether or not the astros are going to close out this 11 to nothing win over the mariners <laughs> so when i did play-by-play -play for some of unlv sports softball quickly became my favorite a the sport itself is actually it, it's a entertaining sport to watch it's a very quick paced sport but on top of that I think it's 10 after five, and I want to say it's 15 after uh, three or four. There were so many games where it's like you were you were done in like an hour. Like there would be times where, yeah, it didn't even take an hour because somebody just obliterated their opponent, and you don't have to carry on and play the second half of that game. It was tremendous. It was unbelievable, and I think every single sport needs some sort of mercy rule so that we can just get on with our days when games are blowouts. I... Uh... What was the question again? I'm sorry, I just got off the seat. Wait, who was that, Jared? I haven't heard that sound before. You haven't heard that sound? Okay, well, I'll play the full version at 9 o'clock during the remix, but that would be Chandler Jones talking about chicken. Oh, okay, I look forward to that. All right, the 49ers have excused Jimmy Garoppolo from minicamp. So he is apparently still rehabbing his shoulder, and the 49ers are still looking to trade him. It is June 7th. Um, I'm putting, I'd put it at like 1% that he actually gets traded before the season starts. Mm, I would put it a little higher than that. Five to 10%. But I think be just because some team is going to have a quarterback injury come training camp, right? Like someone's going to have a need and Jimmy Garoppolo is going to, at least in what a headshot in physical appearance, give you the belief that you can fill that need. Um, like his Nona has filled him up on all sorts Subway? of good meatball subs and all of a sudden he's going to be ready for the year. Like, I don't know. Uh, someone will talk themselves into it. I don't know. I, like, I can't decide whether that's the more ridiculous situation or whether Cleveland is the more ridiculous situation Jeez. with, you wow. know, Baker Mayfield sitting around the stadium eating nacho cheese and waiting to see when Deshaun Watson is actually able to play. You yeah. just solved your own problem. You, you do a one-to-one -one swap. Baker Mayfield for Jimmy G. Now, you, I mean, you have the same problem, but now you have a different same problem. So you started that sentence with, you just solved the problem, and then ended it with, you have the same problem. <laughs> well, I solved Adam's problem. Uh, um, you're not, is Baker Mayfield sitting in an empty stadium eating nachos? Is that a new commercial? 
I'm just saying it should be. Like, progressive okay. should lean all the way into this, <laughs> right? Like, Baker Mayfield in the locker room, like, trying to, trying to access... Uh, you know, trying to access some part of the facility that you normally can't get into without a code, like his key not working, and like, oh no, like you know, Progressive should have insured me against this. Like, oh well, <laughs> they didn't, and so I think Kyle Shanahan, by the way, would murder him. I think Kyle Shanahan, like after two or three days of Baker Mayfield preening around and you know making noise around the San Francisco facility, would just be like, oh no, the hell with this. Get me Nick Mullins back. As far as being a starter, come to training camp and win it. We didn't get to this yesterday, so I do want to do it a little bit here. The Phillies ended up winning three straight games. Granted, it was against the Angels, who are now on a 12-game losing streak. But won three straight games after firing Joe Girardi. Uh, in Sunday's game, Bryce Harper hit a game-tying grand slam in the eighth. Bryson Stott from UNLV hit a walk-off home run uh, to beat the Angels, and that gave them their 11th straight loss at the time. Uh, I love the idea that the Phillies fired Joe Girardi and somehow like, oh, yeah, that fixed everything. They're going to win games now. It's perfectly fine. They're going to be competitive for a wild card spot. The fun part about this as a Yankees fan is watching another fan base go through it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's what it's like having Joey Binder around. Everybody has their buttholes clenched at all times because Joey sets that tone for the locker room. So, yeah, Girardi gets fired. And then all of a sudden the stories come out. Well, there, there was a feeling of tension around the clubhouse. He is a human feeling of tension. That's what he brings to the table. And, oh, did they solve it by firing him? Yeah, clearly they solved it. It's his bench coach who's the manager now. Rob Thompson has been attached to Joe Girardi for years going back to the Yankees. So did you solve it? Yeah, by putting the vice president in for the president. Uh, how, how widespread is the nickname Joey Binders? Oh, I, I work on it as often as I can. I, okay. I This is a, a goal for me. There is a, a Twitter account, which has unfortunately gone dormant, uh, at Girardi's Binder. It's too bad. Too bad yeah. when Twitter accounts go dormant because guys get fired or change teams. All right, coming up next, we'll stick with baseball because there's 100 games left, but we might have a significant part of the playoff picture already figured out. 1-1. One, one. And that's hammered deep to right field. The ball is sucking. If it's fair, it's gone. And that's a fair ball and a home run. A titanic shot by Jordan Alvarez over the right field seats to make it 4-2 to two Astros. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios, this is The Press Box with Graney and Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. Adam Candy in today for Ed Graney. Jared, why are you being nice and playing Astros highlights when they lost yesterday? I may have not looked up their record and just I may have been on the wrong page. All right. I appreciate it. We can uh, we can ignore yesterday. That's perfectly fine with me. But Major League Baseball, there is a new playoff format this year. There are more wild card teams, which means there will be two teams in each league that get buys into the divisional round. The third best division winner will have to play a three-game series against a wildcard team. There will also be another three-game series with just two wildcard teams. So it's very important to finish top two in your league or top two among division winners in your league so you get that buy and avoid that three-game series in the wildcard round. As of now, 
The Yankees and the Astros are both over 50% chance to get a buy, according to fan graphs. And the Dodgers and Mets are both over 50% to get a buy in the National League. There are a few teams that are hovering just over 20%, Brewers, Padres, Blue Jays, to get a buy. But Adam, it's June 7th. We've got like 100-something games still left in the season. How confident are you that those are the four teams that are going to get buys in the postseason? Honestly, how could you not be when you look at the rest of Major League Baseball? As of yesterday, before the games were played, 12 of the 30 Major League Baseball teams had winning records. 12! And this is the year that Bobby Manfred decided to expand the postseason so that right now a 500 Red Sox team is sitting in a playoff spot. Like, if you were trying to create hockey and the meaninglessness of the playoffs, you certainly have achieved it thus far. So Yankees, Astros, Dodgers, Mets potentially going to be our uh, top four, the teams that get the buys there. How big of an advantage do you think that's actually going to be? Or how unfair is it to have a division winner? One division winner on each side is going to have to go play a three-game wildcard series while the other two division winners get a buy straight into the divisional round. I don't think it's that big a deal. Do you? Okay. Uh, Not I don't really. really think, I don't think it's because... If that other division winner is, let's say, what? If it's the Milwaukee Brewers, right? If the Brewers are the third division winner, oh, no, I have to go start a series with Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, and Eric Lauer. Oh, no. How how are we ever going to get through? I don't think it's that big of a deal either because it's still, hey, you know, you can finish ahead of one of the other division winners and you get the bye. Um, but what I do find... Uh, interesting on it is the idea that we're going to get three the, the the wild card series is a three game series in three days all at one ballpark I find that to be interesting where Major League Baseball was like you know we want to add more playoff teams but we can't have the, the the teams with a bye we can't have them sitting around for 10 days waiting for this so we're just going to have a three game series but it doesn't really fit so we're just going to play them all at one ballpark and if you're a wild card team, you don't even you're not even guaranteed a, a home game despite being in a three game series. If you're the Boston Red Sox as a 500 team, <laughs> you shouldn't be guaranteed a damn thing. You shouldn't be getting into the playoffs in the first place. So no, I'm not going to give John Henry and company some gate for opening the the doors once for a team that finished you know 81 81. That's ridiculous. It's as ridiculous as this playoff format. Everything about this is fake. But you know what? It's what we have, so we'll deal with it. I like it. Um, you think all three AL East teams are getting in? Oh, for sure. Look at the rest of the league, man. Look at the rest of this league. The re the Angels have lost, what, is it 11 in a row or 12 it's in a 12. row? 12. They lost it's again. Now they 12 lost one nothing. yeah. They lost right, that's right. They lost to the Red Sox last yeah. night. Oh, so the Red Sox are a game above 500. Hallelujah. Right. So, yeah, the, the Angels have lost 12 in a row. I don't think there's anybody else in the AL West who's getting in other than the Astros. The Central... The White Sox have like a minus 60 run differential right now <laughs> who are supposed to be the prohibitive favorites to win that division. And so the Minnesota Twins are going to do what they always do, get into the playoffs and flame out, except I don't think the Yankees will have the pleasure of doing it this time. So, no, I, I don't think anybody else has a chance of unseating the Rays who continue to do this with some sort of black magic and 17 bullpen pitchers and the Jays who eventually are going to hit, even though they're not hitting now. What is your uh, level of concern as a Yankees fan that the Yankees don't win the division? 
I think there is a reason for concern because we saw what happened two weeks ago when everybody got hurt at the same time and then they're going and losing games to the Orioles. But they've also built a seven-game lead in early June. They can afford a swoon and still come out ahead of this thing in large part because you might have four AL East teams get into the playoffs, right? Like Boston might still be better than anybody else central or in the west so these teams are going to continue to beat up on each other i don't think tampa or toronto is going to be able to go on a long run having to play against this division because it's going to be like the afc west they all beat the crap out of each other so right now fan graphs has 72 percent chance the yankees win the division is that about where you'd be i think that's fair yeah i i don't know that this pitching can keep it up the way that it's done all season long but it's also June 7th, and we're kind of at, what, the, basically the one-third mark of the season. So I, as a skeptical fan, looking at that rotation before the season, saying there's no number two pitcher, I have to reevaluate at some point and say, all right, well, they've clearly been able to hold it together this long, and they had three consecutive starts where their starter allowed one hit going into the seventh inning. Like, there's something that's working about this. Oh, by the way, none of them were named uh, Nestor Cy Young Cortez. Okay, here's a question, because this is, like, me watching the Astros, their pitching has been unbelievably good. Like, the bullpen, I think, still has the best bullpen ERA. Their starting staff is in the top five. Didn't expect the bullpen to be anywhere near that good. The starting staff, eh, a little bit better than expected. But their offense kind of sucks this year. And I don't know watching it how much to be like, oh, well, they deadened the baseball. So, of course, the pitching staff is great and the offense isn't as good. But, like... When you see the Yankees putting up similar pitching numbers to the Astros, how much of it do you look at and say, well, dead ball, and maybe that changes in the summer or if baseball decides, oh, here's a new baseball for the postseason? Oh, it already changed, by the way. In case you weren't watching, uh, this changed on roughly May 14th. Uh, go to the account at BallparkPal on Twitter. Say this tweet. For the first month of the season, actual home runs were about 35% below expected, which tracks with the dead ball coming in this year. But a clear change took place on May 14th that gave the ball about a 10 to 15 point boost. So Robbie Manfred's back in the lab just randomly screwing with the ball and changing the game at all times. So the Yankees have been able to keep up the pitching even in the face of this newer ball that who the hell knows what it's going to do. Look, you're getting the high-end cases out of Jamison Tyone, out of Luis Severino, out of Jordan Montgomery. And, you know, I, I just assume that Nestor Cortez came out of a lab somewhere, you know, like a combination of driveline and fan graphs. Or like, we're going to just see if we can turn this guy with a 90-mile-an-hour fastball into someone who can succeed. And uh, it's worked. All right, coming up next, Charles McDonald joins the show. We're getting close to fantasy football, something that I can feel positive about. I came up with a couple of questions. One, if I had the first pick, who would I take? It has to be either Jonathan Taylor or King Henry, who I expect to have a big bounce back year this year. You're sitting in the press box with Graney and Bischoff on ESPN Las Vegas. Follow them on Twitter at Ed Graney and Bischoff underscore Tyler featuring Adam Candy. Joining us now is Charles McDonald. You can find his work at Underdog Fantasy, his podcast, The Exemplist, and follow him on Twitter at 4Verts. Uh, all right, Charles, do you believe that Aaron Donald used the idea that he could retire to get a better deal from the Rams? Yeah, of course. 
Uh, I mean, if I was Aaron Donald, I'd probably try to do the same thing, but with multiple times, maybe even every year, uh, because you have that much leverage. You're like the best player uh, ever at your position. I don't even think that that's like a hot pick anymore. Uh, why not uh, use this leverage as retirement? Because the thing is, Aaron Donald is now that he has a Super Bowl ring that you know he desperately wanted so badly, and uh, you know made those two plays basically to lock down and win the game for the Rams. He's got nothing left to prove. He's going to win. He's at least in contention for Defensive Player of the Year every single year. Uh, like I said, first ballot Hall of Famer regarded as the best in his position. I definitely think he used the retirement as leverage to get. Uh, more money because one he can and two he can walk away from the game with nothing left to prove because he has like all the accolades you could ever want from not only like an NFL career but also college because he also won uh, basically like every award a defensive lineman can win coming out of pit had a Hall of Fame career uh, he checked off basically every box. Can you remember in your lifetime a player who? either dominates the game the way Aaron Donald does or causes the opponent to change the way that they game plan the way that Aaron Donald does? Like, is there anybody else you think of on that level the way we see it with Aaron Donald? Man, it's like Pete J.J. Watt was, you know, was definitely like this caliber guy. Even you know, <laughs> I, mean, I was just talking about Pete J.J. Watt, my friends, the other day in the he, he he probably was better than Aaron Donald was. He was getting like 20 sacks a year. But, uh, you know, it's guys like J.J. Watt, uh, Von Miller, Randy Moss, like if you're going to go the offensive side of the ball, Julio Jones, like those level of players where, you know, you're coming in and be like, all right, well, not only do we have to deal with the scheme, but we also have to deal with them trying to force feed this one player if we're on offense or, you know, trying to figure out how to let this one guy basically stop him from ruining the entire game for us. Because I think, you know, as you saw in the, in the Super Bowl, when you just have a guy that good, also, you know, voting against guys on the, the Bengals off the lines who are, you know, I don't think they would be starters for most teams. Uh, you, you have, like, that level of talent, and you just see when it's time to put this kill switch on and win a game in that moment. He was able to do it. And now he's, what, the highest non-paid, the highest paid non-quarterback ever. Uh, and honestly, <laughs> Even when you're looking at some of the quarterbacks that are like getting close money, uh, close money to him, because I, I mean, I think even Jared Goff is uh, surpassing still in average money per year. Uh, you know, you, you can still make the case that he's a little bit underpaid relative to the impact he puts out compared to some of these quarterbacks that are getting paid more than he does. Yeah, it's amazing to think about, and I think the part, Charles, to follow up on that 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 jumps out at me is he's asymmetrical, like. A, an interior defensive lineman being able to wreck the game the way he does is just not what today's interior defensive lineman is really asked to do regularly, right? Yeah, we don't really have. Uh, well, I, I think where, where things have like kind of started to change a little bit is you don't really have as many teams just asking their guys to be just like one gap penetrators, like like the, like the basically the way. Uh, you know, guys like Warren Sapp used to play back in the day where, you know, you're basically just running gaps and you have one gap and that's it. You're supposed to break as much havoc as you possibly can. Uh, you know, a defensive lineman nowadays, they're being asked to do a lot more different things, uh, especially when you think about uh, how light some of these boxes are being played. Uh, like, like with the Rams and Brandon Staley, it works because you can play a live box when you have Aaron Donald up front 
And, you know, he can also, instead of, like, just being a one-gap penetrator, he can hold two gaps. He can anchor against double teams. He can basically do everything. That lets you play, like, you know, five guys in the box with one linebacker, what have you. All right. And your safeties aren't as much risk. Well, but when he goes to the Chargers and uh, you don't have Aaron Donald, you, you replace Aaron Donald with Jerry Tillery, uh, you're getting crushed against the line. You can see that, you know, you might need to tweak some of the style of defense. But just in general, even the line today, I think they're being asked to do more than ever. Uh, and Aaron Donald's like, he can play like that classic one gap penetrator role to a T, uh, like we saw in the Super Bowl. But even if you go back and watch some of the stuff with Brandon Staley, like, he can hold the point just like a, a, a 340 pound nose tackle too. It's it's really uncanny for a guy his size. But you know, you go back to the combine that he had, he ran like a four six and jumped out the gym and basically crushed all the agility drills too. Uh, just for his size, he's one of the most athletic players to ever enter the NFL. And you know, I remember <laughs> when I was in college, I played decent tackle, and oh my god, because I was also an undersized, you know one gap penetrator, just figure out how to get up the field as fast as you can. Uh, and, then, you know, I, I kind of realized this in my D3 college football career, uh, I don't run a 4'6 at 290 pounds. So uh, <laughs> it was always going to be a little bit more difficult for me than it was for Aaron Donald. But, yeah, he's, he's the GOAT. He's, like, my favorite player ever. And I'm glad that he gets his due. And I honestly believe that if they didn't, he would have walked away from the game because he has nothing left to do. What's the list of non-quarterbacks that could do what Aaron Donald did? Essentially have a contract, say, yeah, I might retire unless you give me a bigger contract, and actually get that contract. Um, I think the other guy is probably his teammate, Jalen Ramsey, which is insane to think about when you just look at the collection of talent that they have put together just on that team. Because I think the two guys who could walk away who could say, hey, I'm going to retire if you don't give me this money, are on the same defense right now. Uh, Jalen Ramsey, man, I, I, I struggle to think of like a more complete defensive back that I've ever seen play football because he can he can do man zone, all types of zone. If you want to do the deep zone, cover three, cover four, he can do that. If you want to play shorter stuff like cover two, he can hit you just about as hard as any other linebacker can. You can stick him down in the slot because he can make plays against tight ends and even offensive linemen in the run game. Uh, <laughs> man, I. I I, I remember I was covering the Giants, right, and the Rams were playing the Giants, and there was this play where Jalen Ramsey, like, he he basically tackled two guys at once because he had Golden Tate in front of him trying to block for the running back, and I swear he sent Golden Tate into another dimension, bro. And then he goes on and tackles the running back, and the level of physicality plus the coverage skills, I really can't think of another defensive back that plays like that. So that would be... Another guy that I think of when you say it could, like, it could be the highest not pay quarterback in the league, and I think you know guys like Miles Garrett, T.J. Watt, always also fit in that bill. But to me, the two guys above everybody else are Aaron Donald and Jalen Ramsey, and they happen to play the same. Other things that uh, kind of fascinate me this time of year, other than Aaron Donald resetting the entire market for non-quarterbacks as a singular entity uh, is stuff like what's going on in New England right now with uh, who's going to be the offensive coordinator and what sort of nine-dimensional chess here Belichick is playing with this whole situation. What do you think is really going on in New England with who's going to call the plays? I'll say it. Billy B's washed. This is insane. Like <laughs> This is an utterly insane idea. Uh, it said that what, Matt Patricia is the favorite to call plays and Joe Judge is the quarterback's coach. What, what are we doing here? 
I, I, I really just don't understand. Uh, if I was Bill Belichick, I would call plays before I would let any of these guys did. At least Bill has seasons where I think he, I think it was like uh, 2010 season where Brady threw something like 30 touchdowns and four picks. Bill Belichick called a bunch of plays that season. Uh, he's got chops as an offensive play coordinator, uh, offensive play caller. Why is he letting Matt Patricia do this? Like I, I don't know. I don't think this is 40 chats. I, I think this just it's crazy and dumb. Uh, you, like Matt Patricia, maybe he's just a guy that's not a very good football coach. I don't think that you know putting him on offense is going to be the renaissance for his career just because he got torched by offenses for the past five years. Because uh, even that that last season where he was in New England, uh, the year where they lost Nick Foles in the Super Bowl, the Patriots defense was bad that season. Uh, they were basically held together by uh, you know Tom Brady just going God knows that year, and then they ran into Nick Foles who looked blacked out even harder. Uh, in the Super Bowl, so you know, I don't, I don't think that this is just going to be a thing. Well, maybe he was a bad defensive coordinator, so it'd be a good offensive coordinator. I think the more likely thing is maybe he's just not supposed to be calling plays at all. And then Joe Judge, a quarterback coach, I don't know. It, it, it seems like to me Billy Beach is doing a solid to his boys before he retires and says, ah, you know, I'll let you add all these things to my resume to your resume because mine's uh, mine's tough. All right, you heard, it, you heard it here first from Charles McDonald, again, at 4Verts on Twitter. Bill Belichick is washed. Charles, washed. as always, washed. we appreciate it. All right, talk to you guys next week. So there is Charles McDonald. Uh, coming up next, we'll jump back into some hockey because there's another coach that got fired from a pretty good team. Nice little play, McKinnon, far side circle, McKinnon, a shot, he scores! The Mac attack is back, Jack! And ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, this is a tie hockey game. It's over for Ranton, and Ranton and shoots, he scores! The Moose is loose! The Avalanche go two for two on the power play, and they have taken a 5-4 lead with 5-13 to go in the third period of game four. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff featuring Adam Candy. Ed Graney out at the Raiders facility today. Many camp getting underway. Uh, we will hear from Ed tomorrow, hopefully live from mini camp with some important updates. Uh, also, stay tuned later in the show. We've got tickets to go see Slipknot. They are in Las Vegas later this month, and we've got a pair of tickets for you if you want to go see Slipknot. But the Boston Bruins yesterday fired Bruce Cassidy. Uh, Cassidy was the coach there in Boston for six seasons. They went to the postseason all six times. Didn't win a Stanley Cup. They lost the 2019 Stanley Cup. That was the only time they made it out of the second round, though, with Bruce Cassidy in charge. And so there's two ways from a Golden Knights perspective to look at this. The first one that I'm curious about is Barry Trotz. And if the Boston Bruins could be a team that lands Barry Trotz, making it harder for Las Vegas or the Golden Knights to end up with Barry Trotz and the part of that that's interesting is that the Golden Knights have been able to say hey we're the legitimate cup contender all these other jobs that are open pending what Florida does eh, not really cup contenders but Boston certainly a good team certainly a team that could win a Stanley Cup would make that a little bit more interesting so I'm curious if that changes at all the Golden Knights perspective, because again, we're sitting here on June 7th, and it appears as though the entire hockey world or all the teams that don't have a coach 
are just waiting on Barry Trotz to make up his mind, and then everybody else will start hiring their coaches. Don't wait for Barry Trotz. Hire Bruce Cassidy. Period. The whole thing should be really simple for the Golden Knights. This is the best coach on the market. This is the guy that you should want. Look at his record in Boston. If you go over the full seasons that he coached in Boston over the last five years, he's never had a points percentage below 652, which means that if you take the shortened 2020-21 season, he was a 100-point-a-season coach every year. They did win the Eastern Conference. They did go to a Stanley Cup final. Uh, This is a coach who you want a new voice. I'm surprised Boston didn't want his voice anymore. So you want a voice that is different than Pete DeBoer, that is different than Gerard Gallant, but has proven his ability to win. I I don't see where this is a very difficult situation for the Golden Knights. He's got a better record than Paul Maurice or Rick Tockett, and Barry Trotz plays the kind of system that I think is going to drive fans away from this building. So I don't see where this is really something that the Golden Knights should overthink. Now, that's not to say that they could get him undoubtedly if they want him i don't know who wants if i'm a coach tyler let me ask you this i don't know who necessarily wants to come into this job with the height of the expectations that the golden knights put on their head coach it is it is a fascinating thing to look at from coaches perspectives and guys that would potentially take this job because it like the, the easy way to look at it in a positive light for the golden knights is hey this team could win a stanley cup and if you look at the other jobs that are open Now that Boston's open, that's pretty much the only one at the moment. Maybe Florida becomes open, but it's like if you're if you want to win, you're going to go to Vegas and not Winnipeg or or Philly, right? This is the better scenario to win right away and potentially win a Stanley Cup. But I think you also look at it and it's like, okay, Gerard Gallant got fired two and a half years in, then uh, Pete DeBoer got two and a half years, and they fired him even though they said it was injuries were the reason that they didn't make the postseason this season like do i do i want to work for this team do i want to work in this environment where like if i don't win the stanley cup the second one thing goes wrong i'm done and i think that's a fair thing and i i don't know how different coaches look at it I'm, i'd be curious to know how many would just say all teams have some issues i want to go where i can win or how many teams would look at it and say yeah vegas is a little different a little crazy i don't know that i want to be the coach there i don't get it man I don't get any of it. The one thing that makes sense to me with Boston is that they just decided we're going to explode the whole thing, right? Uh, Flutishinzawa right now uh, is reporting that they're going to look into trading David Pasternak this summer, one of the best goal scorers in the entire NHL. Uh, Patrice Bergeron is unsigned uh, at the moment for next year. We just don't know what they're going to do, and that makes at least a little bit more sense. But when I look at the Golden Knights situation to what you just talked about, the idea of does a coach want in on this? I think you have to probably look at it and say, you know what, I'm going to go do this for two or three years and just know that the way this front office looks at things, there's nothing that's necessarily going to be good enough if it's not a Stanley Cup. And if I don't win, then I'm probably going to lose the job. Now, I assume that Bill Foley is probably going to pay top-of-the-market dollars for a coach because he's been willing to pay top-of-the-market dollars for just about everything else, so that's going to make it attractive, too. I do love your idea of just hiring Cassidy and not like not waiting around for Barry Trotz because I've, I've found it interesting that 
the hockey world has just seemed to universally agree that Barry Trotz is so much better than every other coach candidate out there. When do coaches make that big of a difference in hockey? I feel like it's a sport where we can kind of say, okay, coach has some impact, but it's not really a game breaking difference between Barry Trotz and whoever number two would be. And especially now if Bruce Cassidy is interested in a Golden Knights job. Like, I can't imagine there's enough difference between Trotz and Cassidy that you would wait around for Barry Trotz, whatever that decision is going to be made, and not just hire Bruce Cassidy if he, in fact, wants the job. I mean, look, if you look at Barry Trotz as the guy who's the absolute top of the market, then I think you have to look at the record for the New York Islanders, right? Obviously, he didn't go back to Washington. That was a contract dispute after they beat the Golden Knights for the Stanley Cup. Uh, He has not had a points percentage once in four seasons in New York that was better than what Bruce Cassidy's lowest season was in Boston. 628, 588, 634, 5-12. So I'm not saying that that Barry Trotz is a bad coach by any stretch. He won a damn Stanley Cup. Like you can't you can't go away from that. But why are we looking at him and saying that's the guy who gets to determine where everybody else gets to go necessarily? Now, maybe that changes with Bruce Cassidy, who was only fired a day ago, right? I think that should reset the market. I don't know if it necessarily will reset the market. And to your point, Tyler, the way Kelly McCrimmon handled the press conference announcing the firing of Pete DeBoer pretty much admitted what you just said, right? It wasn't about past performance wasn't about how successful Pete DeBoer was. It was the fact that we have all of these different buttons to push, which apparently are all the same color and the same brightness. And we're just going to see which one creates the voice that works for this locker room because all coaches just have to have the right voice. Oh, every I think every team that's fired their coach has mentioned they need a new voice. Hell, even it's even the Phillies, when they fired Joe Girardi, they're like, ah, we just need a new voice. And like you pointed out, it's his bench coach that's the new voice that's been there the entire time right now. But oh, yeah, even just, better. How, uh, what, what if the coach says it, Tyler? What if the oh. coach himself says it? Quinn Snyder said it when he left the Jazz this week. Uh, Quinn Snyder was like, ah, you know what? They they just need new voice. It's uh, pretty good. In I that think locker room. I think Paul Maurice said it when he stepped down in December or January with the Jets. I think he said the same thing. His but his line was like, "I haven't lost the locker room, but they need a new voice." I think we talked about that, right? We did. We actually okay. did uh, okay. talk That's about that. Thought. I, th- okay. I think the what Quinn Snyder was actually saying was, I need a voice that isn't Rudy Gobert. <laughs> I can't win with that voice. <laughs> <laughs>